Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome back to yet another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is uh, episode 79 for Tuesday, August 16th, 2011. As always, I'm your host, Paul Vox, and joining me from his secret location here in the Fragrant Harbor is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi, everybody. Uh, how are you doing, Paul? All right. A little bit better than last week. Uh, mm-hmm. I finally got my uh, iPad back. Uh, nice new iPad 1. Uh, working well um in terms of the overall experience i can say it was adequate Uh, i went Hmm. in it was a it was an outsourced i guess apple group that you know works for apple but is not a part of apple that uh you know they they handled my case and took them about exactly five days and uh, they sent me an email and i got to go pick up my brand spanking new ipad on Friday, and so all is right with the world, and I'm a happy man. It's good, but you had to restore everything all over again, right? Yeah, but you know, it's very easy with mm-hmm. the um, if you do the reg- you know, iTunes does the regular backup. Mm-hmm. Um, so all you do is re- all I had to do is restore from that. There were a couple. There's still a, like a there were a couple little weird things that didn't get restored that I had to go in and sort of manually put in a couple passwords and and things and amazon the kindle app recognized it i guess as a different ipad mm. so it defaulted it to uh, um my the, the name i had under my old pad but they added it defaulted it to a two so i had to go on to amazon and clean that up but it's you know minor nitpicky stuff everything everything pretty much was there i didn't lose any data uh, i didn't have to re you know retype in any contacts or anything like that so i'm happy and hopefully i won't have to go through that Anytime soon, but I'm uh, I'm assuming that if I do, by that time we'll have an Apple store here, and maybe it'll be a little bit more of a pleasant experience, or so I'm told. But we are not here to talk about my problems with my Apple tech devices as much as I'd like to. What are we here to talk about, sir? Uh, movies, that's, and some more movies. Yeah, that's right. We talk about on the show films from Hong Kong to Hollywood, and lots of stuff in between, and we've got a few films to talk about this week. What are they? Uh, this week we'll be talking about Fortune Buddies uh, from TVB and Shaw Brothers. Uh, for West Green, we'll be talking about uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, and Cars 2. Yeah, and all that and some comments and much more. But before we get into anything else, let's get into some news. Right, so we've got a couple news stories this week. Uh, up first, a, a little bit of an ironic or strange bit of news based on some of what we were talking about last week. Um, and that is this news story coming from the Belfast Telegraph. Eddie Murphy is to voice the character Hong Kong Fui. 
Um, I was really excited about this news because, I mean, this was one of my favorite cartoons growing up, even though I remember it being a lot longer than what it actually was. According to the Wikipedia entry, there were only about 16 episodes actually mm. produced. Um, but I can remember as a young kid just watching them over and over and over and my memory, you know, deceiving me as it tends to do now. Um, I had it in my mind that it was just like on and there were lots and lots of episodes, but I guess it was just reruns. Uh, but the article goes on to say that Eddie Murphy is set to lend his voice to the lead cartoon character in the film. Um, the Hollywood star who's known for voicing characters like Donkey and Shrek and the Mushu the Dragon from Mulan um, will be um, doing the big screen. They call it a live action dash animated big screen adaptation of the 1970s animated TV series. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> is it live action? Is it animated? Is it something in between that's going to mix the two? Um, if you're not familiar with the series, it's, uh, uh, it's based on a cult classic about a mild-mannered dog named Penry who is granted kung fu powers after stumbling into a mystic ceremony. And so basically he's kind of like a, you know, a super, typical superhero. He's got this, um, he's a janitor by day. And then uh, when trouble arises, he jumps into a filing cabinet and changes into Hong Kong Fui. And he goes around and he's a bit of a bumbler, sort of like an Inspector Gadget character. But he's successful because of his diligence and because he's got um, some supporting characters who, who work with him. Um, so again, I was shocked. I mean, I think I mentioned it as a joke last week and then here it is. We just stumbled across it. Uh, so what do you think, Kevin? Are you familiar with Hong Kong Fui? No, I, I've never heard of it. Um, and reading the, the whole thing just kind of makes, you know, I hate to dismiss the movie before it's even made, but that's what I'm going to do. Mm. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's going to, it just sounds like. Well, you know, the crappy children's movie that we've watched in the last couple of years, and it's going to be the Smurfs all over again. Um, it just doesn't sound promising at all. Well, Sorry. let me play this for you, just to get you in the mood. Who is this superhero? Sarge? No. Rosemary, the telephone operator? No. Henry, the mild-mannered janitor? Could be. Hong Kong Fooey, number one super guy. Hong Kong Fooey, quicker than the human eye. He's got style, a groovy smile, and a mind that just won't stop. When the going gets rough, he's super tough with a Hong Kong Fooey jump. Hong Kong Fooey, number one super guy. So there you go. That's the the opening theme from uh, Hong Kong Fui. If you recognize the voice, that is the um, famous Scatman Crothers, who was a, a multi-talented star, but he did a lot of voice work in his later years, including this character. I think he did a, one of the voices on the cartoon version of the Transformers. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to do. I think there was a, there was a, a group who actually remixed the song and released it as sort of a rock and roll track uh, a couple years back, but I don't remember who that was. 
but I'm excited. It's my childhood coming to life. I hope they don't mess it up, but with these kind of things, when they're just going for a, crip, a quick money grab, um, who knows, right? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yay. <laughs> I, it's just so, I mean, that really sounded like it was, it, it sounded like every Murphy sang that song already. So, <laughs> well, maybe they'll get him always, to sing it. Yeah, it, it's almost like telling me what to expect already. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't know. It's never know. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our second bit of news this week. Um, Austin Powers, speaking of returns from the past, um, is it time for him to get groovy, baby? Yeah, baby, Um, yeah. This little bit of news coming from MSN Movies says that uh, Mike Myers is in negotiations with New Line to possibly make a fourth Austin Powers films. And uh, I don't know. They say it's been nine years since the last Austin Powers movie. It doesn't seem like it's that long, but I guess it was. The third one came out uh, when I was here in Hong Kong. So um, I don't know if if, if we need another one. I, I thought the trilogy was pretty good on its own, but they made money. And as things tend to do in Hollywood, if it makes money, they will bring it back and beat it until it's dead. Uh, in 1999, the article says Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, um, came out with a $33 million budget and earned $312 million worldwide. The third installment, um, Gold Member, which had uh, the up-and-coming star Beyonce as the leading lady, had a $63 million budget and earned $296 million. So a little bit less, despite a little bit bigger budget, but they still made loads of dollars. And I guess they're figuring fourth time's a charm yeah well i mean the third one kind of tied things up um and what happened was that i think they went kind of bigger and bigger and bigger i didn't they didn't really know how to get bigger anymore i mean the third movie had double the budget of the second movie the the whole appeal of the the franchise in the first place was that it was it made um a lot of money compared relative to its budget and plus it was a big video hit but uh, um, essentially, by the third film, the the franchise was almost going out of control with the budget and and the scale of everything, and I'm not sure if you know people really miss Austin Powers all that much anymore. Yeah, I mean it was it was trendy for a while to sort of make fun of the '70s and uh, the bad teeth and the you know the 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 bell bottom pants and the colors and everything, but they went back in time. They came forward in time. I don't know if there's much more they can do with it. Um, and I just wonder, you know, because Mike Myers' last film, what was it, The Love Guru, didn't do so well. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder if this is like trying to return to something that worked and, you know, grasping at straws in a sense. I'd hate to see them ruin what was a good trilogy for the most part by, you know, pulling a, you know, a Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Hmm. Um so, yeah, and I mean, for for a lot of people, I think the more interesting character, I mean, although Mark Myers did quite a few characters, was Dr. Evil, more right. so than Austin Powers, right? Yeah. Um, he's the one who got a lot more of the laughs and and I think was far more interesting. Well, here's the thing. What happened with the franchise is that I think the first film, it was it was a pretty balance between Dr. Evil and, and Austin Powers, and then... You know, by the second film, they kind of ran out of juice with the Austin Powers character because it was kind of one note. You know, he was always, oh, the 70s guy stuck in the 90s. And then they concentrated on the bad guys more. And by Go Member, it was like almost like the Dr. Evil movie. Yeah. Like yeah. all. So it, it felt like it was running out of steam anyway, the Austin Powers character. So I have no idea what they could 
possibly do. I don't really miss Austin Powers, that character, all that much. And you can't just have a movie of just Dr. Evil. It's just really strange. He wouldn't work by himself. Yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens, I guess. Do another Wayne's World. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'd be awesome. I would love that. But Dana Carvey is Dana Carvey's. Well, they'd have to, it'd be have to be like Wayne's World, you know, Wayne and Garth really old, you know, and, and if they, if they played with it, it might be interesting. Mm. Um, anyway. All right, let's move on to our final destination, which is <sighs> final destination. Uh, mm. this article coming from, and also coming from MSN from their parallel universe, uh, blog site, which blogs about science fiction and, and comic book films and things of, of that nature. Um, the, be, asks the question, could Final Destination become horror's longest-running franchise? Um, now, when I read this article, I kind of got the sense that... What, do they have nothing else to write about? Is this just something to, you know, sort of promote the movie without promoting it? Because it's nowhere near that. It's only, you know... They, and they, they mention this in the article... Um, they say right now, Final Destination as a horror series is just two installments away from Saw, which is still, you know, in, in movie terms, that's still quite a ways off. Mm-hmm. Um, because Saw wrapped up after seven movies, but then it's got a whole bunch of catching up to do before it reaches Friday the 13th, which had 12. Um, uh, and Nightmare on Elm Street, which had eight, including the remake. Halloween had 10. Um, and Hellraiser has nine films and is still going, of course, many of those being straight to video. Um, it, it goes on to talk about how each, you know, each of those series has problems. Um, I'm assuming that they feel that Final Destination doesn't. Um, I can't really comment because I haven't seen a single Final Destination. I know the gist of it is that people basically have near-death experiences but somehow escape and then death is like hunting them down because they escaped death or something when they were supposed to die. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen any. Have you seen any of them? I've seen the first two, and I've seen bits um, of the previous film, the fourth film on, on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I like the first film a lot because when they did the first film, they didn't. it wasn't made like it was supposed to be a franchise. It was just um, a horror film. Uh, not really a horror film, even. It was kind of a... Um, because you're dealing with invisible enemy, and the whole game is seeing how death um, uses these these complicated steps to lead to seemingly natural deaths, and that was kind of interesting. And how the character try to beat it, um, and and that's so often the case with a lot of these horror franchises. The first movie just comes out; it has an original idea. It's right. not intending to go on for five or ten movies. I mean, Saw was that way, Halloween was that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you could argue Nightmare on Elm Street was that way too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then, yeah, the thing is they're working with a one-trick pony for five movies. Essentially the same idea is that these people escape death and then death tries to kick, pick them out. I mean, no matter how much you try to vary around each in each installment, different accidents, different whatever, it's all, it's ultimately the same way and it's just kind of repeating itself and the only thing new is how these people die and, I mean, who really gets what kind of a sick person are you to get joy from that kind of thing? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's clever. It's the, the rubbernecker syndrome, right? It's the same reason people slow down when there's an accident on the side of the road. They want to see. Right, I guess so. But it's just by the time you get to the, even not even the fourth movie, the fifth movie, by the third movie, you're just like, okay, I get it. Okay, okay, I get, I get it. It's like, um, but the thing is, the fifth movie, um, 
which just opened last weekend in America, is the uh, actually the first the first time the the opening gross went down. So it's actually the um, I think the third worst opening in the franchise, or the the third best opening franchise, and the first time is facing a downward trend. Uh, and I am gonna guess that the budget is going to keep steady if they keep making it, but. Right now, it's looking good for the franchise because it seems like there's some kind of audience fatigue now, and people are kind of getting ready to to check out of it. Hmm. Um, I hope they don't make any more of this. I mean, it's just really the thing has already been dead for a long time. The, I mean, the franchise creatively has been dead for a long time, and you know, it's just it's time to let go. I think it's time to give it one of those clever natural deaths that the movie has. Yes, some yes. finality to Final Destination. Yeah. And then we can all buy the box set and watch them. <laughs> all right. Uh, next bit of news coming from our favorite site, Film Biz Asia. This article coming uh, from a couple weeks ago, uh, August 2nd, by Patrick Frader, but I stumbled across it and we didn't talk about news last week and I wanted to talk about it this week. And that is Hong Kong's group, uh, Maya Entertainment Group Limited, is set to do um, release four films or have four films produced through its mainland Chinese division. All four of these are going to feature Minnie Yang, who is the uh, actress uh, from the film we talked about a couple weeks ago, Mysterious Island, and apparently she is also managed by Maya. So she's got uh, you know, a pretty good deal going on. They're going to make four films specifically for her, featuring her. Um, what do you think about this, Kevin? Does she have what it takes to be uh, you know, the box office lead for these Maya releases? You mean like physically or talent-wise? Because um. <laughs> physically, uh, it seems like because uh, I never, I didn't see, I haven't seen a Mysterious Island yet. And um, to be fair, these four films are not centered around her, but she is going to get pretty showy roles, especially in the uh, Alan Mack, Felix Chong movie, The Wind, uh, Wind Seeker, starring Tony Leung. Yeah, so it seems like they really are trying to push her out there, but um, I'm not sure how 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 good was she in Mysterious Island. Um, what do you mean, like, physically or talent? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could also call those talents. Yeah. But um, how, she, no, you know, I mean, I mean, how how was her performance? She she was not the worst part of the movie. I can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she she's certainly she's certainly an attractive young lady. Um, I don't think she would really had a chance to show off any significant acting chops in Mysterious Island, mm-hmm. but you know, the potentials there. The thing is, um, she does have a really huge fan base. Um, currently, I think she has about 7 million followers on Weibo. And um, it's that fan base, apparently, that that came out in droves to see Mysterious Island. So obviously, right now, she has some kind of market power. But I think half of those are Ross Chan, right? <laughs> yeah, I think he bought up half the Cinema Art Theater. <laughs> but no, no um, it's it's in. But right now, I think she's risking overexposure. Um, she was due to uh, have a cameo in the Lu Chuan uh, movie called The Last Supper, a uh, pretty high profile film. Uh, she was about to do a cameo, but because she had too many um, films and TV series to film at the same time, she had to actually drop out. So. Who knows how many TV series and movies she was going to have in not just the rest of the year. I mean, I'm talking about 2012, 2013. I mean, how often are we going to see her on the screen? And how quickly are people going to get tired of her? Mm. That's what I'm worried about. Um, I am glad that Maya is not making the movies for her. 
uh, rather that she's getting kind of bigger, bigger roles in 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 in, in films that have other selling points. Uh, I think that's a good way to go instead of you know doing the warring states thing where you have a bunch of big stars surrounding her. Um, that is a wise choice, and I hope you know that works out for her. And I actually finally uh, look forward to seeing her in the film. Um, maybe I guess I'll I'll have to watch Mysterious Island sometime to see how she is. Yeah, it also mentions a little bit further in the, on the article. Um, that the company is also lining up Butterfly Cemetery, which is an ad- adaption of a story by suspense novelist Kai Jun, who did uh, Curse of the Deserted, uh, one of the favorite films over at uh, lovehongkongfilm.com, right? <laughs> All right. Well, if you, again, if you're a fan, you can be pretty excited because you'll be seeing a lot more of Minnie Yang in Maya's films to come. Um, Kevin, you have a couple local stories for us. Yes, sir. Um, uh, the next two stories are both from uh, Film Business Asia, although you've probably heard of heard about them elsewhere already. Um, Johnny Toe's latest film, Life of a Principal, which he's finally finished after a few years, uh, is heading to Venice as a um, late addition to the competition lineup. Um, after Venice, a few days after that, Johnny Toe also head to Toronto and um, and attend the film screening there as well. So um, it's finally done. Uh, Life of Principal stars uh, Lao Cheng Wan, uh, Denise Ho, Miley Wu, um, who was Richie Ren, um, and it's a drama. Seems like a drama thriller about um, several people who are caught. In, in in the scheme surrounding a bag of money or something like that, uh, the film has taken a while to finish because of you know the way that Johnny Toe shoots. So obviously, this is one of his kind of pa- quote unquote passionate films, uh, not the stuff that he does for commercial reasons. Um, I am I I know someone who is working at Milky Way, and he told me that he, they were actually working very hard on it uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, so I guess they finally finished. Uh, Venice will have one more mysterious film that will be unveiled during the festival. Um, I am throwing in my guess is that it's going to be Zhang Yimou's uh, Nanjing Heroes because that just seems is the last big festival in the fall and they really need it as a launching pad before the December opening. So I'm guessing it's that one. But for now, um, Asian films to look forward to. Um, like for Principal, which I think will come out in Hong Kong in October. Uh, Taiwan Cedic Bale, which will come out in Hong Kong around the same time. Um, yeah, uh, we'll look forward to what the overseas viewers say. Uh, Paul, what do you what do you think? Are you looking forward to this Lao Ching Wan and Johnny Toe together again? Um, yeah, I mean, they've done good stuff in the past, so you know, uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I don't know if it's going to be more like a Mad Detective or... Um. Yeah, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's great that you know. It's great that that while he's making all these commercial films, he has another. He has a romance, theatrical romance coming out at the end of the year. I think that's Romance in Thin Air. It's great that in between these projects, he has time to finish up. You know, these slow passion projects that he takes his time to make, um, and that kind of makes him. That kind of keeps him on his feet, or keeps his fan on on their feet. That you know, while they didn't catch the good, you know, commercial stuff, they also look forward to stuff like this. All right. So uh, you've also got a story for us. We want to talk a little bit about this last week, but again, we didn't cover much news about uh, Fox. Yes. No relation. Oh, um, not Mr. Fox, uh, but I mean 20th Century Fox. Uh, in Hong Kong, and Macau, they've announced that um, 
they will not be distributing any more 35mm film prints starting January 1st, 2012. Um, most screens in Hong Kong are actually re- has, ha- have digital projection, and Fox has also been releasing prints, digital prints anyway, so this is not a big deal for them. Um, it is a big deal for the several remaining theaters. I think there's two in Macau that don't, that don't have digital projection yet. There's at least two more in Hong Kong. Um, that don't have digital projection. So this is going to start putting pressure on those theaters to switch to digital projection. Um, I, for one, uh, ha- have a thing for film projection. Um, I think digital prints look great. They're clean. They, 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 don't, they, don't, you know, they don't wear out. Um, but sometimes it kind of makes me feel like I'm watching a big, big Blu-ray. Really, this you know, what I mean, it's I kind of miss the film look, the grain, the 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 um, the cigarette marks, the um, uh, what you want to call it, the you know that little jolt that when they switch reels, it makes you feel like you're watching a movie. You know what I mean, Paul? Yeah. Well, you can um, always go to the Dynasty. They have yeah, stains think, on the screen. I think even the Dynasty would have to switch. Actually, no, the Dynasty already have one digital screen because they switched to 3D. So, um. This is kind of a force. This this might be the beginning of a trend where you know um, distributors now all have to start putting out digital prints. Uh, most Western film distributors are already doing it. Uh, I've seen at least two local films um, showing digital projection. Um, what 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 do you which one do you prefer, Paul? Do you have a preference between digital and 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 film? Um, do you do you actually notice when you go to the movies? I. I it depends on the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I remember seeing Cloverfield uh, in a digital print, and I got really sick mm. because of the shaky cam and because of the clarity of mm. of, of the uh, screening. Uh, but I'd also watched it at an older regular theater, and I, I was fine. So, you know, I think for some films, you know, it, it bodes well, but... You know, for others, I, mm, I don't know, because I really like good resolution and I, and I do like clean pictures. Um, but then I could I, I could see how maybe film festival buffs would, you know, it's sort of like the old digital versus uh, analog debate that goes on with music, where some people say, you know, the sounds that you get from an old vinyl record, they somehow add to the musical quality and that if you just have this perfectly remastered version, it's somehow it's different. It's not the same. It's less artistic somehow. So Mm. I see both sides of the issue. Um, For me, it would basically just come down to individual films, I would guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, with films starting to get to be shot in digital, I guess it makes sense for digital projection. Um, but for films that are shot on film, there is distinct kind of a distinct look to film for me. Um, sometimes you can really tell when a film is shot on digital, especially when there's uh, a lot of movement going on. So maybe it's just me, you know, being the the old. You know, it's kind of ironic that I'm saying I'm the old timer of this situation here. But yeah, it just feels like I'm sometimes you know I am kind of the old timer, and I kind of you know like the old the film look that I'm used to, as I, especially since I grew up looking at that film look and saw I can see very clearly how the transition is happening uh, but you know uh, I, digital has its own advantages and film has its advantages and of course it's going to be great for um, multiplexes that don't have qualified projectionists they don't have to worry about 35mm anymore yep. <laughs>
All right, so we have one e-screen film to talk about this week, and that is the new TVB-produced film, The Fortune Buddies. Kevin, what can you tell us about The Fortune Buddies? Okay, uh, a little bit of context. The Fortune Buddies is um, spin is a spin-off of the variety show uh, Fun with Liz and Gods, I believe. Uh, it is led by Liza Wang and um, these three TVB talents, uh, Louis Yuan, Johnson Lee, and Wong Cho Lam, are kind of her sidekicks, and they're responsible for essentially most of the comedy sketches that you see on the show. Um, so after the popularity, um, they will be getting a TV drama later this year, and they're also getting their own film, which is this, The Fortune Buddies. Yeah, they've, they've previously had a stage drama with her as ah, well. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes. I mean, there was a, it was a concert or a stage drama? It was like a concert thing. slash... It was basically their show, but on stage, as I understand it. Right, right. Which features music, but it also features skits and, and, yeah. Yeah, so as we learned from the Final Destination franchise, when you have something that's popular, of course, you have to beat it to death. Uh, so the film version is the beginning or is a continuation of that. And, of course, it stars Wan Cho Lam and Johnson Lee and Louis Yuan um, with, this time, Eric Zhang, who has been playing a pretty heavy role in all TVB Shaw Brothers films uh, thus yet, except for actually Jane the Pearl and, and um, Perfect Wedding. Uh, also joining the cast is Fiona Sit and uh, Ma- uh, an old face, I think. Uh, I forgot her name. Uh, something Siu Feng. It's a, it's a face we haven't seen for years. I mean, she was a TV star. Uh, also have Fala Chan and uh, yeah, many TV, pretty much many, many, many cameos. Um, the plot... Follows, of course, these three guys who are living together, kind of down on their luck. They are never employed. They don't. They're never employed in a in a real day job. They just kind of go from job to job. Um, Johnson Lee plays um, a guy who calls himself uh, a rich second generation, meaning that he's a son of a of a rich guy who is kind of slumming it. Louis Yuan is a is a single father who is taking care of his son, um, and used to be, or he keeps saying that used to be a gangster. Uh, Wan Cho Lam is kind of your typical um, post eighties um, um, teenager about a job and now not even in school. He has a girlfriend who is played by Fiona Sit, and uh, in a bit to impress her father, played by Eric Zhang, uh, he promised that uh, he would take care of her. So Eric Zhang poses a challenge. Um, he challenges him, uh, Wan Cho Lam character, to to make five hundred thousand dollars within half a year, so that. He can ensure that he will take care of his daughter, um, and in the midst of that, that attempt to get that five hundred grand, they, the three, um, decide to do a street show on Sayon Choi Street uh, in Hong Kong, which is like the, the most crowded street, I guess you can say, in Hong Kong. Um, it's also a street that was featured in uh, Seventy Two Tenants of Prosperity, except this time it's the real street. So I'm very impressed by that. Um, and in the midst of uh, doing one of the shows, they realize that. Um, Putting on a fake wrestling show attracts a lot of audiences. So they team up with these two fake Shaolin monks played by Wang Cheng and uh, Lam Suet and decide to put on this, this wrestling thing. Um, but suddenly, an uh, American wrestler from, like a, uh, I think it's a parody wrestling league in America called WWV shows up and um, Wang Cho Lam accidentally beats him and that kind of embarrasses him and the rest of the league. So uh, the league, which is led by a uh, character played by Maggie Chen Ho Yi, 
decides to come to Hong Kong and get revenge, and they want to put on a real wrestling show um, with the American WWE wrestler against the three, the so-called fortune buddies. So that's pretty much the rest of the film is how they how these three underdogs train to to beat these big American guys. Um, since this is a TVB movie made for local audiences, so there are a lot of local references uh, if you can catch them all. Uh, especially if you're a TVB fan, most of them are TV, TVB related. Uh, there were references to, I think, the, the magic show that they had a couple months ago. I mean, there might have been uh, some references to dramas, um, references to local stars, uh, to recent, um, uh, recent big uh, personalities like King Kong. And, of course, you have Michael Say, who is right now in a drama playing Laughing Gall one, once again. Uh, the film was shot very, very quickly. As far as I know, it was—I think it was shot in 20 days or two weeks or so. So um, you have that feeling that it was quick. It was put together very quickly, especially when uh, when it comes to editing. Uh, there are a lot of things, a lot of uh, double, multiple angles don't quite match up, and and the editing is kind of shoddy. Uh, it does have a feeling of a Lunar New Year film. It's very crowded, very loud. It, it, it has a lot of comedy and it's very cheerful. Um, but the problem is that it's kind of it's kind of shoddy one. Uh, many of the jokes fall flat. The timing is bad. The the you know they run too long. Um, the editing really hurt it because it was so abrupt. It was put together so quickly that, like I said, there's no continuity at points uh, between shots. So that kind of hurt the actors' performances as well because I mean they're doing one take as one with one one way, and then suddenly you cut to another angle, and it feels like a completely different take. And they kind of switching expressions really quickly. So the editing really hurt the acting here uh the act attempt at the attempts at drama uh especially regarding louis Yuan and his son and wancho lam and fiona said the romance to me they they kind of fell flat just because the comedy work really didn't work well so when it came to the drama it worked even you know it, it was even worse and some of it was really embarrassing um there the louis Yuan and the son thing um Gets it goes to a pretty embarrassing place, especially regarding uh, singing um, a, a theme song from a really outdated film. Well, I wouldn't say outdated, but it's just a really outdated cultural reference. Um, it kind of makes you wonder how hard could it possibly be to make a movie about three underdogs who has to wrestle three big American guys. I mean, it's not these underdog sports story are all over the place and. Honestly, the trailer was actually kind of promising. That it, it looked like it was going to be at least a bit fun, uh, you know, the typical underdog story, and it, a lot of it just didn't really go anywhere for me. Um, and it makes you wonder how hard could it possibly be to make this kind of story told well. Um, however, I have to say there are moments, uh, flashes, brief flashes of comedic brilliance. Um, there were references about local politicians, a uh, Henry Tang that I really liked. There was um, a really surprising ending uh, re- resolution to the whole whole, whole wrestling thing. Um, there were moments that I really did laugh that I was really amused by. But, you know, when you have these little moments in a 90-minute movie, it's, it, they're just not enough to make the entire movie better. Um as for TVB, of course, they're, they're really self-promotional as always. Uh, there are tons of product placements here. One for uh, internet service that really jumped out at me. There was one, multiple um, references to Kiwa, the bakery. Uh, this, time they're the, this time the movie is presented by Kiwa. 
So there are plenty of uh, Kiwa product placements. Kiwa is a local um, local chain that sells um, bakery, uh, like like pastries and 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 mooncakes and things like that. So they show up all over the place. And of course, TVB promotes itself by making these references to the to the to the shows, to the popular shows. And it feels like half the time it feels like a big TVB ad. Um, but surprisingly, at the same time, there were there were references that kind of throw throw not only their own people, including Raymond Lamb, but also their own audiences under the bus. At uh, one point, uh, the Lamb phone, the, the Raymond Lamb uh, picture scandal was referenced to, was referred to. Um, and then uh, one point, one character literally says, TV audiences don't demand anything or they don't have any demands or they don't have any standards. And I think that could be the same. Uh, you could say the same for audience of this movie. This is really made for audience TV audiences who who don't really have any standards. <laughs> and uh, it feels like if you have that kind of non-standard, I think you might enjoy the film more than I did. Um, as for my rating, if you watch just, you watch anything TVB, if everything you watch is TVB, uh, if you can catch all the references here. Even the local stuff about minimum wage and and uh, real estate prices, speculation by mainlanders, things like that. Even then, you can laugh at you can, you can pick up everything. I say TV it because that's really where it belongs. Um, if you don't think you get uh, a lot of the jokes, um, I would say skip it because it's really just not worth the time. If you if you're not gonna understand the the, the jokes, and there are not that many jokes that are worth laughing at anyway. So sorry, uh, Paul. This is gonna be one of the worst movies of the year for me. <laughs> I have to say. Shall we start the cage match? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, this is a case of I think rushed production for sure, and I think many of your complaints that you and criticisms that you picked out are valid. Um, but I still had fun with this, and you know, it 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 takes me back to. I know when we were talking about the movie Microsex Office with Jim Chim, and I said, you know, I have a hard time understanding because he's so good on stage. And, and in fact, I just saw him on stage last week. Um, mm-hmm. He's running a stage production now with both uh, Harriet Young and, uh, and Tyson, who were both in uh, Microsex Office. He's got a three-person show with him and the three of them called um, uh, Nuyan Chifu, which is basically um, Woman Like a Tiger. Which is uh, which is sort of an iteration of of show he got famous for, Man a la Tiger, which he did I want to say five six years ago, and it was great. I mean, it was super. They were they were super funny. They were on. Um, it was just a riot, and I get the sense that these guys, these three guys here, um, when they're in their element, which is on TV or maybe on stage. Um, they're probably a lot better than they were here. Uh, a lot of the material that the, the, the leads have here are, in fact, just redundant jokes that they've already done on their TV show with, um, with Liz. So, you know, Johnson Lee, he's known for doing, uh, you know, parodies of people like Adam Chang and Aaron Kwok and famous celebrities. And so they have a, a scene where he's just, you know, running through rapid-fire impersonations that he's known for doing. Um, and it's hit or miss, but he's done them much better uh, on other stuff. Um, but it is a Chinese New Year movie, but it's not Chinese New Year. So I, I, I kind of got into that. I was like, oh, this, you know, feels like I should be giving out red packets or something. <laughs> the um, thing is, I wanted to get into it like that because 
you know, that's why I kind of expected these kind of cheery, cameo-filled TVB movies to be. But I thought I Love Hong Kong and, and 72 Tenants were done much better. Even, you know, the humor was a lot yeah. more hit. Well, I would agree little... that um, 72 Tenants of Prosperity was better than this. Um, maybe I Love Hong Kong. For sure this was better, though, than, say, um, All's Well, Ends Well, 2009. Mm. Um I just had a lot more fun with this, maybe because I was able to keep up with a lot of the Hong Kong references, mm-hmm. um, and because of some of the self-reflective, you know, uh, parody that was going on. Yeah. The 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 WWF thing though is is so from out of nowhere. I <laughs> mean, wrestling is not even a big thing here on TV. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think you can even. You know, one of the one of the big jokes in in the in the states is that if you watch the Sci-Fi Channel, if you subscribe to the Sci-Fi Channel on cable, um, most of their programming is WWF stuff, and people are like, "What does that got to do with Sci-Fi? Nothing." <laughs> but it's cheap programming. Um, but you don't see that here, and you don't even see a lot of the Japanese style um, professional wrestling that comes out of Japan. And there was a movie with um, who is it? Sammo Hung's son. Uh, a couple years back, called Osaka Wrestling Restaurant. Did you ever see that? Oh, I've heard of it. I yeah, think it it's a direct, direct to direct to DVD movie um, where they like he he's a chef and he sets up a restaurant and they put a ring in the middle of the restaurant. And they do Japanese style wrestling, um, but you know, just have have a parody of the WWF. I'm wondering if people are local folks are really going to get that. You know. Um, but I, if they're going to do that, they should have gone the next step. They should have gone and gotten somebody from the WWF, you know, get, get a Hulk Hogan, you know, get a, uh, you know, get, get one of the guys who's somewhat famous and still around and kicking known for doing movies. Hulk Hogan would have been perfect. But that Um, would like require like a budget. (laughs) Well, he's not doing much these days from what I understand. I think they could have afforded him. I don't know. Um, you know, just say, Hey, Hulkster, come to Hong Kong. Oh yeah. You know, um, I did wonder where they got those those guys in the movies. Yeah, because uh, I've never seen. Well, I've seen the one guy, the 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 one who's sort of like the main wrestler who's who gets, you know, mistakenly beat up in the first scene. I've seen him in some local commercials, uh, and and stuff. So, but yeah, the other guys, it's like, where do they find these guys? I mean, is there <laughs> is there like a list I can sign up on? Um, <laughs> I thought you were in the movie. We thought you were in the movie at one point. There was a guy in the background that looked awfully like you. Yeah, it wasn't me, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, or if it was, you know, somebody took my image without my consent. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, the, that was kind of a weird angle, but you know, once you get past that and you, you go, okay, these scrawny guys are going to wrestle these guys, you know, you, you're not really taking anything seriously, but the plot really does suffer from the same problem as, uh, Choi Le Foot and some of the other films that we've talked about in that it all comes down to this big sponsored event but nobody is going to pay these guys half a million dollars to watch them wrestle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not, it's not believable. Um, you, you say these guys are going to go out on, 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 you know, the street and do it as, as a gag and, you know, get some, you know, people to throw some coins in a, in a tin tray or something. Sure. I can buy that, but no producer is going to come in and say, yeah, we're going to watch these guys wrestle and we'll pay them uh, $500,000 dollars. Because it's gonna generate that much of an audience, I, I just that takes it far out of the realm of possibility. 
Um, and there were some, there were a lot of technical problems. There were some problems with the editing. It jumps around at times. And when you see the credits, um, they have outtakes. There were entire sections that were cut out. Um, if you look at the, mar the the stand marquee or the or the the cardboard marquee poster, um, one of the main actors who's featured prominently is uh, Bosco, and he's only in it in the credits and in, in outtakes. Um, I didn't see him at any other point in the film, so his whole section was like cut out, and it didn't seem to make any sense or any have any context with anything we what we saw in the film. So it was like they had snippets of all this other stuff that didn't seem to make it in for whatever reason. Um, but I did like that the TVB was sort of poking fun at itself. It was poking fun at its TV dramas, Michael Say. Um, and if you are somebody who watches TV, it's good stuff. It's funny if you can get it. But if you're outside of Hong Kong, you're probably not going to get it. So this is a film that's really for Hong Kong people or mm -hmm. at... at at the least, people who keep up with TVB. Mm -hmm. um, and it insults everybody. It insults Americans at one point. It insults, you know, for the, because for the, it says something like, um, oh, you know, who's going to watch wrestling? That's such lowbrow entertainment or something. It says, well, the Americans will, the Americans like it, you know. That, yeah. Um, <laughs> They're the worst then, audience in the world. And then it says later, you know, when it comes to Hong Kong, oh, yeah, the Hong Kong audience will like it. Um, I, I it, it kind of insults the Japanese because the particular drama, that they're filming at the studio uh, at one point is this drama that was on last year. Uh, I think it was last year, right? That got with uh, Wayne, Wayne Lai. Yeah. That yeah. got, um, you know, is got King some Kong criticism yeah, for, for the portrayals of uh, Japanese. But it doesn't insult China. So no, it does. It got the you have the uh, the, the mainlanders coming to buy buy real estate. Oh yeah, that's right. In in the in the. Uh, was that in the outtakes or no? That was no, no. That was in the that was right in the beginning, yeah. And, and what then, did they say? I should have should have saved it as a as a subtitle of the week. They said, um, uh, Fiona Sit, who's she's working as a property uh, agent. She says, "Oh, do you want to come up and and see the flat?" And and the the mainlander's like, "No, no, no. We, you don't you, you don't buy, We're not buying flats to live in them. We're just buying them for investment. They're much too small to live in." Um, yeah, or what, I think the next the next next line that another character was uh. Oh, you have, if you're not speaking Mandarin, we, we figured you weren't buying houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the the um, one of the things I did like was it, it shows the guys living in like a rundown housing estate. You don't really see that a lot these days, um, especially on TVB. Even mm -hmm. the poor families on TV, TVB live in these huge uh, palatial style flats. Um, so it was kind of kind of neat to see them like all you know in this rundown place, sharing a bunk bunk bed and sharing the toilet, and um, kind of reminded me of some old films like um, It's a Mad 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 World and some of the stuff that they used to do that were a bit more reflective of you know the lifestyles of actual local people for the most part. Um, but yeah, Raymond Lamb, wow, <laughs> uh, that was Poor just Raymond funny. Lamb. <laughs> uh, I I wouldn't think, but then again, it's being produced by Eric Zhang. Who holds no punches? I mean, he really, you know, whether it's his, um, it's his uh, variety shows on TV or, or his films, he will go after the joke, regardless of who's involved. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's another thing that made me kind of like this that they were willing to do that. Um, so yeah, I'd have to say, you, if you're somebody who's into TVB, if you're always watching TVB dramas, um, it's a see it because I because I liked it that much. 
Um, if you're just somebody who likes the leads, you like Wang Cho Lam or, you know, Louis Yen or, or Johnson Lee, um, you can TV it. But if you don't know who any of these people are, if you don't know what TVB is, I'd say you kind of have to flee it. So it's a really mixed review for me, depending on, you know, what your perspective is and where you're coming from. East Green, West Green. All right, it is time to talk about our West Screen film for this week. Um, before we get into that, uh, I just see that Matthew Seidel's popped into the chat room, so I want to throw a shout-out to, to him and say thanks for stopping by to listen to the live stream. Um, our West Screen film for this week is Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And Kevin, you have not seen this one, is that correct? Nope, uh, I didn't have time. All right, so Sorry. it's all on me. <laughs> For the moment, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Um, this is a film coming from a fairly new director, uh, Rupert Wyatt, who doesn't really have a lot of Hollywood films under his belt. So I was kind of surprised that first he was given the title because it's a pretty big title when you come to think about it. But I was equally surprised at how well he actually pulled it off. I was very, very nervous about this film because I love the original the original series, even though they're, you know, you look back at them and they're full of heavy cheese right now, um, you know, compared with modern films and, and Charlton Heston in the first one, he's like, he's like a man from a different age, really. Um, it, it was just a different sense of masculinity back then, but uh, I love them nonetheless. I did not like the Tim Burton reboot, and so I was very, very nervous with this one. Um, but basically, Rise of the Planet of the Apes tells of a young scientist who's invented a serum or, or a drug that can help improve uh, memory. And he's doing this um, to try and help combat um, <clears throat> Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Uh, this scientist, Will Rodman, who's played by James Franco, um, is working on this, uh, this serum, and it's sort of a retrovirus, and they're testing it on chimpanzees. Um, but something goes wrong with the testing, and uh, the, the, the one of the chimps who's undergoing the testing goes berserk, um, and they think that it's a problem with the virus. Uh, they later come to find out that, in fact, she was just protecting a baby that she had secretly given birth to. And so... As the chimps are all the chimps who are undergoing testing are ordered to be destroyed, um, James Franco's, Franco's character decides to save the baby and he ends up taking it home. Um, the baby chimp starts to grow up and it shows a remarkable uh, aptitude uh, and mental capacity. It's able to start learning sign very quickly and undertaking tasks and using tools. And um, James Franco's character, Will Rodman, figures out that the retrovirus has been carried on uh, into the baby. So it's become sort of a native uh, a, a na native to the baby's uh, engineering. Um, but, of course, as with all things, uh, people tend to fear what they don't understand. And uh, there are a series of incidents that lead to the baby, um, the, the baby chimp being um, causing some trouble. And they end up having to put him away. Um, but during this time, James Franco is also secretly testing the retrovirus on his father, 
who has dementia. Uh, his father is played by uh, the great John Lithgow, who's who's really really good in in the role here. Um, but while the the baby who's called Caesar, who is actually played by Andy Serkis, who is uh, was Gollum in the Lord of the Rings film, um, who's doing all basically motion capture work here and uh, face capture for the facial emotions of Caesar. Um, while Caesar is in captivity, he starts to learn more and more, and ultimately he is able to um, basically get some of the virus and utilize it to make some of his fellow chimps in the place where he's being stored um, equally smart. And at a certain point, he decides he needs to uh, lead sort of an uprise and, and try and get his him and his fellow chimps uh, to escape. So it's an escape movie, and it's based on, I guess the best way to say it, the the plot is not based on the original Planet of the Apes. It's actually based on the fourth film, which was called Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Now, the original series had all these things with time travel and a lot of that going on, so they had to do a lot of changes to that to sort of um, make the update what it is, with sort of a starting film. But the core is there, the, the, this idea that there's a, there's a smart, dominant ape who has human-like intelligence, who's able to lead other smart apes um, into, this, into this revolt. And he sort of becomes the founding figure, the, the Caesar character. Um, and the changes that they do here are fine. I think it, it all works really well. There's lots of hidden material for fans who like the original film. There's lots of parallels. There's lots of references. Um, it's amazingly well acted, and it's a solid story that sets the stage for sequels to come. I was very surprised because I didn't think I was going to like James Franco in the role, but he really, really surprised me. And I kept thinking, all right, where is this going to go? How are they going to end this? I didn't think they were going to be able to pull it off well. I got, there was a point I kept waiting for like a shoe to drop where I was going to say, all right, now this has just gone beyond the realm of... Um, believability. I, I, I felt I was going to have to suspend my disbelief a little bit too much, but no, they kept it, for me, um, very much within the realm of believability, and I just liked where it went, and I, I liked the way they set the stage, and I'm very excited for the sequels. I say, bring them on, bring them on now, please. Um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, again, I'm a little bit biased because of my love for the original films, but I was nervous about this one, and I think they did a really bang-up job. Uh, if you're a fan of Planet of the Apes, and I know I have a couple fans, friends of mine who are fans in the States who haven't seen the film yet because they were nervous like me, especially after, after Tim Burton's version. Um, but I have to tell them and tell you all listening out there that if you're a fan, oh, you owe it to yourself to see this in the cinema. Don't wait for video. So it's definitely a see-it. Um, if I've never seen any of the films i've seen a tim burton one but i've never seen any of the other ones how how will i how is it going to work no for me? it's fine it's still a solid story all on its own i mean like i said the, there are references to the original films um that are there if you've seen them you'll go oh i see what they did there they're kind of like little easter eggs or, or 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 little hidden cookies in some ways but if you don't know what those are it's still fine it's still going to work um it's still going to work equally well um, you know, the casting primarily is James Franco and, um, and, uh, John Lithgow here. 
Uh, Andy Serkis is great. I know a lot of people are saying that, you know, he should be up for an Oscar, that they need to get beyond this idea that, you know, um, if you're an animated actor, you're not counted for an Oscar because some of, you know, what he's doing here is amazing. A lot of people talked about what they call the uncanny valley, which is this idea that um, at a certain point, robots or automatons or creations um, give you this sort of creepy feeling, um, mm. sort of like a valley of the dolls kind of a thing, because mm. it's very human-like, but there's something off about it. Mm. Um, I kind of got that in a couple scenes, but then I very quickly moved beyond it. And I was just into believing that this was, you know, a character. Um, of course, you know, in, in the original films, they all were basically guys in gorilla suits and, and, and chimp suits. Um, but at a certain point, you were able to suspend your disbelief. And, you, you know, you heard Roddy McDowell's voice, but you believed you know, the character he was portraying. Um, and I think it's the same case here. You, you get beyond that CGI very, very quickly, and you, you really get into this. Um, so he did an excellent job. Um, there, there are, you know, lots of other people here as well. Um, who is it? Uh, uh, Tom Felton, I think, from uh, uh, Harry Potter. You know, Draco Malfoy. I, I think he's going to forever be a bad guy. <laughs> um, you know, not to give out too many spoilers, but he's he's forever going to be playing a douchebag character. And <laughs> that's just going to be his lot in life. I, I heard, I think I read somewhere he wants to be a rapper now. He wants to be like... Uh, uh, don't worry, uh, that was a joke. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, I'd yeah. read something like he wants to be like Eminem or something, but <laughs> I'm happy to hear that that's a joke. Um, but yeah, I'd say definitely this is a, this is a summer movie to see. Um, whether you like the originals or you, you've never seen the originals, it's a, it's a great film. Right. Uh, other West Screen film for this week is the latest Pixar feature, Cars 2. Uh, so, Kevin, since you didn't see Planet of the Apes, why don't you take on Cars 2 for us? Sure. Uh, Cars 2 is the latest film from Pixar Studios, which I think, well, I love. Uh, Paul, I think you love too. I think everyone loves who loves animation probably loves Pixar. Um, did you watch the first Cars, Paul? Yes, I did. What, what, did, what did you think of it? Um, not my favorite Pixar. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, but um, um it's it's probably. I see. I'm not a NASCAR person, mm. um, and I'm not into automobiles that much. I mean, it was enjoyable, but I'd say that it's probably my least favorite Pixar film because the mm. others are just so much more interesting for me. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I yeah. the the one exception is there's a short. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's. I, I want to say Tokyo Drift, but I know that's the Fast and the Furious. Hmm. Um, but it's basically 
um, the character of Tomator, it's a, it's a short where he's talking about an experience he has in Japan. And I thought that one was really, really good. And they kind of redo that here a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think you might have just found your new least favorite Pixar movie. I'm not sure. But this is my new, my new uh, least favorite Pixar movie. Cars, like you said, was uh, actually for me as well, was my least favorite um, Pixar film. But, you know, it had a really nice, you know, slow down and enjoy life, that kind of message. And it had nice, um, it had a really good performance by Paul Newman, voice performance, uh, some really good animation. Uh, Cars 2 is kind of like a complete, takes the, pardon my pun, it takes the, the, the uh, franchise into a completely new direction or a different path, uh, so to speak. This time, uh, the movie is kind of a spy action adventure um, that takes uh, Mater and Lightning McQueen uh, out of the uh, radiator, radiator Springs world and into um, different global locations. It's kind of globetrotting. Um, this time, a, um, a, a certain car, I think a, a conglomerate, a tycoon, yeah, tycoon named Miles Axelroy, played by uh, Eddie, Liz- Eddie Izzard. He's invented an uh, alternative fuel, uh, and in, in order to prove its worth, he decides to uh, invite some of the world's best racers on a on a World Grand Prix. Um, so Lightning McQueen uh, joins the Grand Prix and decides to take uh, Tomater along. Uh, so they they travel the globe. They go to Tokyo and and London and what's the third place? Um, uh, Italy. Italy. Okay, so to go with those three places. Uh, in the middle of it, um, Tomater finds himself uh, in the middle of a, of a spy spy espionage con- uh, uh, mission that's led by uh, a spy car uh, played by Michael Caine, and he's kind of caught right in the middle of it uh, accidentally because he's a stake- mistaken for American agent. Um, so uh, the, the the spy Finn McMissile, uh kind of think that Tomater is playing it playing playing stupid instead of just being really stupid and he thinks he's a brilliant spy and meanwhile they're trying to they're trying to uh, uncover this big conspiracy and that's uh, pretty much Cars 2 uh, honestly I didn't really I hated this change of direction I really like the even if I didn't like the first film I liked the first film in a way but even if I didn't really like it as much as other Pixar film I did appreciate the message um, about you know, enjoying life and slowing down and, and, and um, appreciating um, things from the past and things like that. And I felt that it was a really genuine, it came from a genuine place and it had heart. Um, but here it's, it's now this big action adventure. And what was the message again? I mean, there was this, this fake, this, this really, you know, insincere thing about friendship between Lightning McQueen and Tomater. But the thing is, the, the, spy, the spy plot keeps getting into the movie and then it kind of pushes Lightning McQueen aside and he just kind of stands on the side the whole time, or he's racing, or he's yelling at Mater, and that's all he does throughout the movie. And the friendship message doesn't really work for me here. It was kind of it. It felt kind of obligatory. It was almost like it had to be in there. So Tomater, um, I guess there are fans of the character out there because he's now kind of front and center as the star. And for me, he's he is really one of the most annoying sidekicks I think ever in a Pixar animated film. Um, I guess there are fans of Larry the Cable Guy out there. I am not one of them, and I think Mater was really annoying here. And by halfway through the movie, I just kind of had it with his, with his, with his shtick, whatever it was. Um, choosing Michael Caine as the spy was really an inspired choice. 
Um, I thought that was great. Hearing his voice was great. But the thing is, the whole spy thing felt like a parody. Well, the parody movies that was at the end of the first film. At the end of the first film, uh, they showed um, several. They re- redid several Pixar movies and and replaced all the characters with the cars and it's played at a drive-in theater. And I thought it was this the be- the opening scene where Michael Caine has this big action. The, the M- Misso has a big um, action sequence in the beginning. I thought it was gonna cut to cut to a, a driving screen. It turns out they're watching a movie, but turns out it wasn't. It was part of the plot, and it was really weird to see. This 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 whole story turned into this action film. Uh, the humor fell flat for me. It, it it almost like it was going back to the six year old they were aiming for. Uh, because I guess when you're a talking car, you can't really have a franchise franchise grow with the audience because it's been five years since the move since the first film. So you had audiences who watched the first film now they're five years older, but the movie isn't really made for them. It's really made for I guess new six-year-olds uh, I was trying to attract new fans and for me it was just felt kind of juvenile for me and it didn't um really work um i felt a little too old for it and that's the first time i ever felt like that at a, at a pixar film so that was a really weird feeling uh the action felt gratuitous like it, it was really dazzling to watch as all pixar movies are um especially in the um Tokyo sequences, the colors, uh, the billboards, and neon signs. It was really wonderful to see. It was really dazzling. But all these action stuff felt really empty. Um, the entire film felt really empty. Um, I never thought I would see an, such an empty film coming from Pixar. That, a movie that's, that feels like it's made for pure visual visual entertainment. And that it didn't really, the plot didn't really hold together. And it felt kind of draggy by, by the third act. And I was kind of, I, I kind of just wanted to be over. Um, uh, so with that said, I think there was a toy, there's a toy story short film that comes before the, the film that's seven minutes short. And it's kind of like a, you could say it's a continuation, but it's more like a separate episode in the toy story world. The same characters, all the characters are back. Uh, and just kind of like this one, seven minute, skit and i felt that it had it more hard more warmth and more humor than all 107 minutes of cars too i enjoyed that little bit of short far more than i did the rest of the movie and that's really sad i think especially especially for a film from pixar i mean i think i think it's fair that we hold a fairly high standard for pixar films um and what can i say it just didn't feel like it felt like uh it felt like an Ice Age movie or something. <laughs> I hate to say it. Um, and don't get me started on 3D. The 3D actually really ruined the the, the visuals for me because of the dim projection. And and I felt that at points, because of the 3D and the digital look and the dim look, it kind of felt like Cars 2 was a direct-to-video film. It didn't really work for me. Um, when I took off the glasses and I looked at the bright animation and the day and the and the and the sunlight and the radiator springs visuals in regular dim regular bright projection, it would look wonderful. But when I put back on the glasses, it was just back to this dim, flat digital look for me, and and I really hated the 3D here. And this is the first time I really went against 3D on animation. So this is definitely not a film you want to watch in 3D. Um, for those of kids, um. Or fans of the first film who are kind of curious where to take the franchise, I would say TV it. Um, for everyone else, especially people who, who hold Pixar in, 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 the, in the higher standards that I or many of us do as well, I would say skip it just to avoid disappointment. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about this before, the problem with 
you know, Pixar and sequels. And I, I, I was very much stunned by their choice to do a, a, a sequel for Cars. My only, the only thinking I had is maybe because they can sell more product, more toys. Um, I think so. New characters. You know, they have. I, I know that myself and many of my friends would love to see an incredible sequel. Um, but you know, it just seems like even a sequel for Wally or just about anything else. I mean, I know that Bugs Life is one of their lowest grossing films, but I liked Bugs Life a lot. I wouldn't mind seeing those characters again. Yeah. Um, they've given us three Toy Stories. There's talk of a fourth Toy Story now, and you know, they had a short here. Um, and usually the shorts are, you know. Uh, original, but now we're getting sequels in, in the shorts as well. So I'm afraid they're starting to get to that point that Disney got to in the 90s. Mm. You know, they were doing so successfully with their 2D animation reboots, starting with The Little Mermaid. But then at a certain point, um, things started to go off track, and they started doing all these direct-to-video sequels and you know, the quality of the storytelling got worse, and then the artwork started getting worse, and then there was, you know, just more and more pressure to have that income coming in. And I hope that's not the case here. I've gotten into some discussions with some other um, critics and, and film people talking about, you know, is this a necessary evil? Do we have to get a Cars 2 sequel so that we can get a film like Up?, or do we have to get a Toy Story 4 so that we can get something that's a little bit more daring in what it's trying to do? Um, and if that's the case, then okay, I can understand that. Um, but I certainly don't want to see you know a continuous lineup every other year of another Toy Story, uh, you know, another Cars, or or sequels in general. I mean, I think a sequel here and there is good you know, when, when the films do well, but just like with Austin Powers, we were talking about in the news section, you can really, you know, beat a dead horse and just try and milk it for everything it's worth. And it's just, you know, making the audience angry and, and not doing a, a good service to the legacy of, you know, the original creations. So I hope that's not what they're doing. And now, now Cars 2, I would say, I'm probably liked it a little bit more than Cars 1. Mm. Um, because I liked the international aspect of it. Um, I liked the fact that it wasn't just at Radiator Springs and it wasn't just about racing. I liked the spy elements. Um, I kind of liked the fact that the shift here w was to the character of Tomater. Um, but again, you're right. He is Larry the Cable Guy. And I'm not sure how that humor really translates internationally you know because it's really redneck humor it's based on things like you know the the stand-up comedy of jeff foxworthy and, mm. and that kind of stuff and th that appeals to a very small you know group but the the cinema was pretty much sold out when when i was there um there were lots of six-year-olds like you were saying a lot of them had lightning mcqueen shirts on mm -hmm. um and i did not think that cars was actually that popular internationally but apparently it is um but I did like, you know, I like the spy stuff. I, you know, like you said, Michael Caine was a perfect pick to sort of take on this persona as a, what's supposed to be sort of an Aston Martin and, you know, a parody of the original James Bond super spy car. And, and I like that aspect of it. Um, 
you know, the, the voice work was good. Um, some of the supporting cast, Eddie Izzard was really good. You've got uh, Tony Shalhoub in a very small part. You know, lots of little small parts. People from the original film were there. Um, uh, Bruce Campbell was in a small role. Mm -hmm. um, just lots of little, you know, tidbits to pick up on. But then you've got a lot of people who they just didn't utilize a lot of because so much focus was on, you know, Larry the Cable Guy's character. Um, even Lightning McQueen, uh, this really wasn't his movie. Yeah, um, I mean, that was the problem, yeah. So, you know, it, it's, again, if you're somebody who really likes the the Mater character, then you'll this will probably work a little bit better for you. Um, but in the end, it was predictable. It was kind of, um, you know, I don't know. It just didn't have that magic that the other films had. Even in sort of the, you know, one of the things I used to look forward to in the Pixar films was reference to other Pixar movies. You know, like you said, in Cars 1, they were, you know, watching movies of Cars, but as, like, Monsters, Inc. and stuff like that. And, you know, for a long time they did that, and they seem to have stopped doing that now. Um, I, I always found that to be clever and smart and, you know, a focus on good writing when, when you pay attention and when you love what you're doing. But when you're just doing sequels and sequels and sequels and that's it... Um, and even your shorts are sequels of sequels. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it's just losing some of that magic. And I, and I hope they can get that back and the stuff they've got planned to come out in the next couple of years. The thing is, I, I didn't mind. I really like the Toy Story sequels. Um, not just because I like the characters, but because you had the themes that... Yeah, more and more mature themes as the as the franchise went along. I mean, in fact, the third film, I wouldn't even recommend the third film for really young kids because it's so. If you think about the the context of the the, the, the plot, it's really dark stuff that it kind of grows up along with the target audiences. But it just seems like Cars is forever stuck, and and it feels like it, those of those people who who caught the original film. It just feels like they never. It doesn't really grow up with them. It just feels like it's pandering to a new group of kids. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I'd say, I'd, I'd agree with you. I'd say if you're somebody who, you know, loves Disney, loves Pixar, and you've got kids, uh, see it as a matinee, maybe. Yeah, if you have kids, you have to um, see it. I guess. But otherwise, you know. Even me, I think I could have waited for video for this. So I'd say, you know, as a huge Pixar fan, um, I would have been happy with this as a as a TV. It. Um, if you're not into the Pixar stuff at all, I mean, you just skip it because you won't you won't like what's being done here. It's not it's not something unique or original. It's not uh, it's not pushing any boundaries. Like it's not, it's not blending things like Wally did, and it's certainly not taking a risk like Up did. So. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. So we got a couple comments from our last episode, episode 78. Um, if I can bring up the page. Um... Yes, uh, these comments are on the topic of Bay Logan. 
as Gary Lau writes in. Um, not a lot of love for Bay Logan. <laughs> I don't want to really <laughs> go into. I don't. I don't want to be hating on Bay Logan um, too too much. Um, but you know, everybody's got their opinions of him. Um, Gary talks about how he attempted to contact him uh, because he was working on um, some, I guess, some reissues of some of the films that Gary had done some uh, some translation subtitling work on, um, and how that you know, basically didn't work out. That's similar to, similar to my experience, just dealing with uh, Mr. Logan um, via email uh, a couple times. Um, Matt S. wrote in, he says, I can't comment on Mr. Logan directly because I've never been exposed to his work, but my problem with people like him in general is they, they often let the title of Asian film expert go to their head, and he cites um, an interview for the U.S. release of Kung Fu Hustle with another individual um, you, you guys, you know, again, I don't want to bash people here. You can go over to the website and read the comments and join in on some of that commentary. Um, but yeah, you know, producers are producers and they do what they do. I, I'm always afraid of coming across in the way that Matt's talking about here. You know, I never want to seem like I'm an Asian film guru cause I'm certainly not, um, you know, I, I've seen a, a lot of films, but there's a ton of stuff that I still haven't seen. You know, there's probably, there'll probably be a ton of stuff that I'll never get a chance to see. Um, but yeah, if, 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 if listeners, if I ever sound like I'm coming across as an Asian film guru, please send me a nasty email and with a slap and uh, snap me out of it. Cause I certainly I'm typing don't. it now. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're here for. Um, yeah, not knock some sense back into me because I certainly don't want to come across like that at all. Um, but, you know, again, one of my favorite commentaries that I've, that I've listened to was um, the one that our friend Tim Youngs has done for um, Hong Kong Nocturne on the Celestial release. Um, he does the commentary for that and it's great. I mean, I don't think, you know, he comes across poorly at all. He comes across as knowledgeable and he, he's got some great historical things to share about the film. And, you know, I think that's, that's when a commentary really works well. Um, when you've just got stuff that you, you share and you have a passion about it and it, it's not really about you so much, um, being on the commentary. Um, so hopefully I'll never sound like that. Mr. Ma, any comments? I swear that transcript with the Stephen Chow interview sounds like something I would do with like someone who's not Chinese. Or something. <laughs> it's like I remember with uh, Andrew Gonzalez. You know, I do. I'm actually good. Well, I don't know. Hey, I I know I sound dumb, so I never do things like these. All right. Well, that's that. Um, do do stop by over at the website and join in the conversation with the guys there. Um, and I'm sure that they would, uh, enjoy some feedback and some comments as we all do. I think that's it, right? That's a show. Yes, sir. That right. is the show. Well, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything we wanted to cover. Uh, so what, where can you find us? Well, as always, uh, we are on Stitcher. Uh, that means you can listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry or other web OS phones. Um, Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store 
or at Stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio, and we thank them for having us on. Um, I'm just really happy that we are on multiple platforms, that we're not simply restricted to the morass that is iTunes. Although Yo, I'm just happy that someone's in the chat room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's in there now? Uh, that's Dave. Hong, Hong Kong Dave, Dave is in the Hong chat Kong room. Dave. And uh, we wish him well over there in the UK. Keeping your head down with all those, uh, all, all that nastiness that's going on in the streets, I hope. Um, and, and now they're all talking about, what is it, uh, shutting off the social networks and, and whatnot. Yeah, it sounds like Children of Men is going to start, it's like, oh, it's going to start coming true in like about two Please. weeks. <laughs> Great movie, though. Yes. Um, a terrible, terrible setting, but yeah. yeah great well, <laughs> well, well, James Cameron's talking about it, but uh, apparently the uh, transportation authority in uh, San Diego's doing it. Did you San Francisco. Read? San Francisco. Yeah. Did you yep. read that news? Yep. The BART turned off their oh, yeah. the cell phone networks because what the of the What the heck? Yeah. But I mean, it kind of makes you appreciate the fact that you can now have cell phone reception underground. I mean, people, I think we have it so much. We've had it for so long that we kind of neglect these things. I mean, we forget that. Hey, wait a minute. We're getting cell phone reception underground. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing thing. But yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And there was another civil protest down at the BART, I think, just this today in, in uh, San Francisco time. And, uh, you know, San Francisco, ultra liberal city. So I don't think. I don't think uh, the people there will just let things rest. Yeah, I don't think it will become uh, England or anything like that. Good no. on you. Don't yeah. take away the service. That's right. All right. So, uh, well, that was, that was uh, totally going off into left field. But Stitcher Radio. <laughs> yeah, you can find us on Stitcher Radio. Um, thanks again to everybody out there listening, everybody in the chat room who stopped by, including uh, Matt and Hong Kong Dave and uh, anybody else who's out there listening either live or as a podcast we really appreciate all the things that you guys do and the, the feedback that you give us and if you would like to find us and give us some feedback you can do so over at our website at www.concast.com uh, stop by leave a comment or two we might just you know get involved into reading that here on the ep- on an episode uh, stop by iTunes and leave us some feedback there if you would like uh, leave us a five star review if you like the show and Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash concast, or you can follow Mr. Ma at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. Email, and uh, you can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and if you would so desire, you can send us in a short uh, audio question or a short audio review, uh, MP3 format, and we might just play it here on the show. Uh, Kevin, where can people find what you're up to? Uh, you can read... My blog, The Golden Rock, at uh, lovehkfilm.com. Um, in case I get the URL wrong, you can find the homepage, but it's uh, www.lovehkfilm.com slash blog slash The Golden Rock, I think. If you if this is wrong, you can find the homepage. Uh, I am taking a break this week because I have, you know, sleep to catch up on and way too much other work to do but i will be back by this weekend more news um more china news um box office whatnot you can also follow me of course like paul said earlier on twitter the golden rock um sometimes i do write reviews for for lovehkfilm.com and this week you can also see my review for larry crown on www.ypmovies.com.hk the english version of the page 
All right. That sounds awesome. Next show, episode 80. A little bit of a special show for us because it will be our two-year anniversary show and we will be reviewing uh, the film Overheard 2, which is coming out this week. And it's a little bit ironic because um, back in our episode one, two years ago, 2009, Overheard was the first uh, East screen film that we covered. Yeah, it's so, like a, it's just like a little karma slash yeah, it's fate thing. Moment of Zen or something. Or did you actually plan this two years ago, Paul? Yes. Please tell yeah. me your brilliant, how brilliant. I'm thinking that far ahead. Yes, <laughs> I wish. Uh, I can't even think until tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but I do have this in honor of uh, that film. I have my own car. <laughs> <laughs> and let us not forget the famous Michael Wong scream. <laughs> Thank you, Michael Wong. The gifts well, that keep he on giving. Movie ever made? <laughs> I have my own car. Yes, you do, <laughs> and I do not. But I have my own show, and we will be here next time for episode eighty. Uh, overheard too, and pro- pro- probably uh, Larry Crown, because I think that's the only thing, uh, only thing between now and then. West Green Rise that I'll be able to get out and see. And not even Larry Crown has his own car. <laughs> He has a scooter, right? He has his own scooter. (laughs) He doesn't even have his own car. All right. Well, that and much more on our next show. Until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you good viewing, and we'll see you next week. See you next week, everybody.